tuning in again to the Veterinary Kaleidoscope. My name is Kate and I am a clinical veterinarian uh, with a veterinary practice on the New South Wales South Coast and I am a trans woman. And I'm Cam, I'm a Palawar man, I'm also a vet and a PhD researcher. We're going to be joined this week by Magdalene Award. Magdalene has had a long and wide and varied veterinary career uh, and also personal life as well. She has uh, experienced burns to 30% of her body at the age of three years old. She's had brain cancer. She has been, was worked at the RSPCA in Yaguna for 17 and a half years, has been Chief Veterinary Officer of Petshaw and is currently Chief Veterinary Officer at Green Cross Veterinary uh, Services. She also speaks two languages. So welcome to the Veterinary Kaleidoscope, Max. Thanks, Kate. Nice to be on. Thanks, Cam. No worries. Just starting off, uh, our usual start off, uh, what we've all been up to these, uh, for the last month or two. What have you guys been up to? Yes, first, you go, Mags. Okay, well, being in one of the lockdown LGAs, apart from working and um, my morning runs, I haven't really been up too much. Um, it's, it's, it's been interesting being in lockdown because you just don't realise, um, you know, how much you used to do. But then did you have to really do all that stuff, you know, because you can actually survive doing what you're doing now. And um, I think the last couple of months is I think it makes you re- reassess, you know, what's really important and, you know, we all know what that is connection and, and family and friends. Cam, what have you been up to, mate? Um, well, I've actually taken a bit of time out from the PhD. Um, probably seems a bit of a weird time to be taking time off in the middle of a lockdown, but um, just at a bit of a tricky time and just needed a bit of time to, to decompress. Um, been getting stuck into a lot of the things that I enjoy. Um, cooking, um, been doing a bit of meditation um the meditation app um going on yeah walks for as far as i'm allowed within my 5k's um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah i've just been taking some time to to work on some creative projects as well um doing a bit of art um yeah what oh, about you kate i'm kind of yeah, I'm kind of jealous of you guys. So sort of, you guys have been decompressing. I think I've been compressing the last couple of, certainly the last week. Um, been a bit of a challenging time, not going to lie, in uh, certainly the uh, the trans world sort of uh, mm-hmm. out there. So, um, so in New South Wales, there was there's a legislation has been was presented before Parliament called the Education Amendment Act, Parental Rights Act. And it's quite anti-trans. It's very, very, very strongly mm. anti-trans. Uh, and so this last week I've been doing a lot of media, um, so radio, sort of for newspapers, uh, just to because the report, the Parliamentary Committee report on that act was handed down and was very challenging. 
Very, very challenging. There's mm. lots of recommendations that were, quite frankly, downright discriminatory and transphobic. Been doing a lot of uh, a lot of media associated with that. Uh, yeah. On the positive side, uh, we had we're at Purple Day a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, I saw you in your purple there, Cam. Sort of uh, <laughs> um, the Friday centers. Well, if listeners don't know, we're at Purple Day is uh, just a day. Um, supporting efforts to support LGBTIQA youth um, in schools and generally uh, lots of anti-bullying initiatives and stuff uh, associated with that. So that was really good and uh, did a talk for UQ actually for, um, uh, did a bit of a Zoom link up, bit of an interview with them. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, some great, some awesome vet students up there. They organised an entire Pride Week of programs a pseudo Pride Week because I couldn't have one back in June. Um, mm. uh, so uh, that's what we've been up to. Um, anything going forward, anything you guys are looking forward to? Apart from, God, isn't everyone lo- looking forward to coming out of lockdown? Yeah, uh, looking looking forward to um, seeing my husband, Kate. I haven't seen Tony for, I think, coming on eight weeks now. Um, so the wow. kids are really missing him and... Yeah, well, he's um he'll be double back this week, so we'll we'll see him very shortly. But um yeah, it's been hard for the kids, you know, and for me. But um you know sometimes you just have to put those things in the back of your mind and go, you know, the world's still okay. Um, but yeah, it's interesting um how you know kids can cope really well, but then they tell you things and you think actually they're not so good. You know, they miss their dad. So I'd like to start here. Um, I'd really like to know why veterinary science and also how your family, um, because you do come from, and I'd love to sort of, uh, if you're happy to talk about your family's origins, how they sort of, how they reacted to you being a vet and doing veterinary science. Yeah. And I mean, look, that's a, that's a, that's a good point about um, my background. So um, I was actually born in Lebanon and I um, came out here when I was about four years old in the mid seventies. My dad had actually come come out earlier um, to find himself a job and a house so that um, eventually um, he actually wanted to go back to Lebanon and stay back there um, because he obviously had all his family back there and, you know, family's a big pool. But in 1975, the civil war broke out in Lebanon and that was that went on for, you know, 20 years. And so mm-hmm. at that point, um, and this is, you know, where I say that, you know, some refugees come on planes. Um, my dad was able to get my mum and my, my two other sisters and myself over from um, Beirut over to Australia, um, just like literally as the war was breaking out. And so um, wow. we got to grow up in Australia, which, you know, probably shaped the rest of my life because I don't think, you know, I would have achieved as much as I've achieved in my career and, you um, being the person that I am now, if it wasn't for the fact that I grew up in Australia. I, I love the fact that, um, you know, back then, you know, people were very receptive to refugees coming into Australia. Um, and I guess, um, you know, my parents um, ended up having seven children, <laughs> you know, big Catholic yeah. Lebanese family, they, that they would have seven children and, um, you know, um, worked full time, both of them. So, you know, I grew up with both my parents working different shifts. And when one wasn't working, the other was um, looking after the kids. And, you know, they were factory workers. They came, you know, they didn't have the opportunities to go to university. In fact, Mm -hmm. I always tell this story. My dad was actually in his first year of uni and also trying to become a Catholic priest when he eloped with my (laughs) mum. 
Wow. <laughs> Although Dad liked, um, they still managed to have a party that went on for three days, a wedding party. So there you go. So, yeah, so, um, you know, growing up in Australia, um, in, you know, in a, I guess, in a family that was of non-English speaking background, it had its challenges, Kate and, and Cam, it, it wasn't easy. Um, my parents, you know, did everything they could to, to raise us to be, you know, Australians. Um, and for that, I, um, you mentioned earlier that I could speak two languages. I can, I'm fluent in Arabic um, and I can, you know, understand people and converse with people. But one of the things my parents didn't do was send us to Arabic school because they didn't want us, you know, they wanted us to be Australian. So, and I really regret that because I'd love to have actually having a second language and being fluent in both written and and, um, and conversational Arabic. But that's what my dad decided and, you know, for, for, for many reasons. But we, yeah, we never went to Arabic school. We just, you know, we were Australian and that was it. So veterinary science, why? I, I, I loved science and I loved maths. I was a maths geek, you know, typical four-unit maths. Um, I just... Yeah. And from that background, like I, I didn't... It's really interesting, Kate and Cam, I don't know about you guys, but... Obviously, Kate, you mentioned that you'd always wanted to be a vet, but you get to high school, you get to the end of high school and suddenly you've got to fill out these forms and go, what do I want to do in my life? Mm. You know, and I didn't know what I do, wanted to do, but I just loved science and I just loved maths and it just sort of made sense to do something in that field. But, yeah, look, I, you know, and obviously loved animals, but um, just fell into it really. And, um, yeah, that, that, that's, yeah, sometimes, you, you know, all our parents wanted for us was all the opportunities that they never had, Kate and Cam, you know, like, yeah. They didn't have the ability to go to uni, so obviously all seven of us went to went to uni, and um, you know they didn't have wow. the opportunity. Yeah, like mm-hmm. they did not have that's, the opportunity. That's an to incredible. Yeah. yeah, that's an incredible effort, and what an amazing, what amazing parents. Like, sort of, uh, mm-hmm. certainly my mum didn't go to university, and certainly was definitely for her. My mum was a single parent, and definitely for her, that was a big thing that she wanted to make sure I had a chance to go to university. What was your pathway, Cam? Were you a, like a always well, wanting to? Yeah, I think, really I think my earliest memories, um, I was very big into Thomas the Tank Engine when I was young. And so I think my first memory was nice. I wanted to be a train. Failing that, uh, <laughs> a train driver. Um, yeah. But not many, not many trains in Tassie um, where I grew no. up. So um that that sort of faded away over over a little while, and always grew up around a lot of animals on a hobby farm, and just always had lots of animals around. Um, and also my uncle's a vet, so got to spend a bit of time at, at his practice. So got a bit of exposure there. I actually had a little brief jaunt into human medicine though, yeah. and I guess I got the marks to get in and thought, I'll give it a go, Um, but just didn't really feel right for me to begin with. And so did six months of it and just wasn't wasn't feeling it and always sort of knew that, yeah, vet is much more for me. So so then, uh, yeah, had to make the, the move to the nearest vet school in Melbourne and, uh, and they haven't been able to get rid of me since basically. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's any consolation, Cam, you could still be a train driver. I, I do tell the story that when I was when I was little, I wanted to be a veterinarian and a girl. But at that stage, for a boy to be a girl, they had to be a showgirl, and I couldn't sing and dance. So, sort of, <laughs> so 
it's sort of, but it's still possible, Kev. You can still be yeah. a train driver and I a think veterinarian. Would, I, could, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could have you a could drive mobile, the gear up and down. <laughs> mobile train vet practice. Mobile train vet, like sort of. Well, that's that, that's still a possibility. Yeah. I have to say, I did, I did sort of want to be an astronaut at some point. But when I was in mm. high school, I don't know if you guys remember the space shuttle Challenger. Um, oh, and yeah. And, and I was watching that live with my dad one night oh. and we, we, we didn't know what happened when it first happened and then yeah. watching it and then realising, oh, maybe I don't want to be an astronaut anymore. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's. <laughs> yeah, mm. Wow. Okay. It sounds like a super supportive family there, Mags, but another thing I was just thinking as you were talking, you talked about your family, your parents really wanted you to be Australian and, and sort of uh, fit in. To, for want of a better term, to the to the culture and, and sort of, uh, and I think the term in those days was often bandied about was assimilate. How did you, were you the sort of, when you got to university, did you feel like sort of, did you feel like you wanted to stay in touch with your Lebanese cultural origins? Did you find an outlet for that? Like, I, I guess um, it, it always will be there because, you know, your family, your, your, um, you know, your, your culture. I mean, when you're Lebanese, origin you know you can't help but have lots of family and friends and lots of food mm. uh, you know it, it, there's a lot of um sort of culture that remains with you regardless of whether you move away from you know my sister you know move away from home so my sister actually lives in London and um you know she's forever on the phone every single day with my parents um you know mm. there's no one day that she's not on the phone with them and um you know we're very very close and I think, you know, that's one of the things that I really value about the culture is that, you know, you are their child and you are their family member for life and they will ring you every day. In fact, I tell this story when I'm on Zoom calls with or Teams calls with my with my colleagues at work and I'll just say, I'll just, just hang on a second, I've got to open the door for my mum and dad. They're just bringing down food. I just saw them come past the window. <laughs> I mean, they still do, you know, and I'm an adult with, you know, a family of my own. But, um, you know, that sense of family is, is, is really strong. So I don't think I, you know, have ever lost that, even being at university where, you know, I was, I was the only Lebanese, you know, person um, doing the degree at the time, um, or, or person of Lebanese background, because I consider myself yeah. Australian. Um, but it's yeah. really interesting because um, it, there was very, you know, there wasn't very much diversity in vet science. Um, you know, obviously yeah. we had when I went through about 50 50 uh, males and females in our year, which you know at that point was still was normal. Yeah, but not as much diversity as I guess there is now which has been a big shift in the last, say, 20-something years. And did you feel alone from that, so to speak, or, or sort of, uh, or was it, oh, look, I'll just get stuck into it and get sort of stuck into it and make new friends and all that sort of type of thing? And, and, and I guess the reason I ask this is probably because we do, like we've got quite a few, we are starting to see like a lot of cultural diversity really coming through our universities, thankfully, sort of about time, even when I went through, and I think I went through a little bit after you, Mag, sort of uh, through Sydney, yeah. like we had a few, we had a few Southeast Asian students, some Japanese sort of students, uh, um, but it was still, it was kind of still a sea of white, classic sort of UK, European how did you, like, you obviously had those family roots and that would have been a, a great sort of thing there. Did you sort of find your time at university, you felt like you fitted in and didn't have any drama? Yeah. 
I, I went to school in, in Cogra. We used to call it Wagra. It was very, and I'm trying to make it funny, but um, we, we make jokes about being wogs, but there was a, um, it was very multicultural. So, you know, I never went to school with any one particular type or, or background of people. You know, we had Lebanese, we had Maltese, we had Italian, we had Greek, we had Australian, you know. Every, so I never felt in that environment that I, you know, I was any different because everybody was, you know, everybody was different. And so... Um, you know, for me, growing up in a multicultural area meant that I already had that understanding of some of the challenges that you that people were facing. You know, I, I still remember, um, you know, wanting to have cream cheese sandwiches um, on English bread, you know, for in primary school because I didn't want to yeah. be different. Yet, you know, mum wanted to give me Lebanese bread because that's the bread that we normally yeah. had. And now I look back and I think everyone's eating Lebanese bread now. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> So, I, 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 you know, things change and, you know, maybe we were, you know, setting the scene for all the changes that were going to happen. Um, but at the time, you know, you did want to fit in. You didn't, want, you didn't want to have your salami and your cheese sandwiches. You wanted to have the cream cheese or I hated Vegemite. I couldn't stand Vegemite when I was growing up. So I had cream cheese and when cream cheese gets spread on English bread, like it's disgusting. It goes all hard, but yeah. I still ate it, you know. But, look, I think the diversity in when I grew up um, meant that I never felt in my life that um, I was, you know, from a, back, a different background. So when it came to uni, I, I think, you know, I, I was fine, you know, just like everybody else. Uh, I did. It was there were pe- lots of people, when I say lots of people, different backgrounds, they might have been had a Greek background or something or, um, you know, or, or Japanese, had Japanese and everything else. But there wasn't the diversity that I now see in the graduates, um, definitely um, the new grads that I see now, which is great. Definitely fantastic to see. We might move on to your time at the RSPCA because you spent quite a bit of time at the RSPCA as head veterinarian, uh, 17 and a half years, I think, wasn't it? Oops. Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> it was 19 years all up at the RSPCA. I came in as a, a I left um, my first practice, which was um, for a year, and then I came into RSPCA as a very recent grad. I loved everything about it. There was, um, I think, you know, the most important thing that you can have in your life is a sense of purpose wherever you go, like whether it's work or home. And, you know, I, I found a sense of purpose at the RSPCA. You know, it, everyone there was there for the same reason. Um, they wanted to learn. They wanted to do some good in society. And there was just this, this, this extremely collaborative and collegiate culture. And I think that set the scene for me for how I have tried in my you know, in the next sort of part of my life to lead because I, I learned that the most important thing is that you that you look after people and um, that's how I was treated when I was there and I, you know, continue to try and do that now. So it was a fantastic place to work. Yeah, and I remember you telling me, Mags, that like at one point at the RSPCA, like between all of the staff, you'd sort of, there was something like 20 or 20 plus languages like that people could speak and and of course, the RSPCA in Sydney at Yaguna would have still does sort of service quite diverse communities. And this is a, I think this is an important sort of topic that we sort of sometimes don't necessarily reflect on a huge amount is is how we can serve communities where English may not be their first language, uh, English may be a second language, communities who do have different cultural backgrounds, and how we can 
embracing diversity within the profession itself can help us to actually serve those communities and, and sort of uh, and really help them. I, I was hoping you might be able to expand a little bit on that, Max, in sort of in your experience at the RSPCA there. Yeah, and certainly um, where we were based at Yaguna um, was around the Bankstown area, which, you know, it's extremely culturally diverse. A lot of Vietnamese, um, a lot of um, Arabic-speaking people, a lot of, um, you know, Chinese. There, there was, um, it, it was a very multicultural area that we serviced anyway, regardless of other people that were coming from other areas to surrender animals as well. So, you know, there were obviously we had to um, take that into consideration, not only when we were dealing with animals that were surrendered, but privately owned patients that were coming in with clients, because there were a couple of things. First thing was obviously the, the issue with having to translate um, for certain people who, who didn't understand, say, for example, what a surrender was. And that was really important for us because, you know, surrender could actually end up in a euthanasia. And, you know, we had to make sure that they understood that. So we actually, we actually had a... Um, a poster on the wall and we had all the different languages and then we had the people in our organisation, um, whether it was a clinic, the shelter or the inspectorate or other areas of the organisation that could speak those languages so we could call on them if we had a client that needed some translation and it ended up that we had close to 40 of our staff at the time who could speak all those languages and there was over 20 sort of languages that we could speak and you know, it was fantastic because I think we serviced our clients and their needs in our community in a way that I think would never have happened if we weren't so diverse. And I often had to go to the front counter and speak Arabic to people and, God, my Arabic is not great. Like, it's seriously, it's very broken. But the good thing is I can converse and understand and, I, you know, I could, I could get my message across. But, um, but it, was, it was fantastic. And what came out of that as well was, you know, and I know that, um, Cam, you could talk to this in Indigenous communities, is that there are different ways that um, you can own a pet that still results in good welfare. Mm -hmm. um, and so, therefore, we worked very closely with our clients, understanding that those clients didn't have those animals in their beds with them, but they still loved them and they still, you know, valued them as pets. They just didn't have the same way that they looked after them than, say, for example, someone living you know, alone where, um, you know, the bed, the dog sleeps on their bed, you know, it eats sliced up, ham, you know, ham and, and, um, and steak, all those sorts of things. So I think, so I think it allowed us to actually have a different perspective on there's not one way to treat an animal or talk to a client or work with them. You know, you actually ended up being able to give people the ability to make decisions and choices for their animals and the treatment based on, you know, their, their needs as well as making sure that the animal welfare needs of the pet were met. So you actually became really good at not just having one way of doing things that you, you know, you're able to um, really communicate with your clients and, and, and get the best outcomes not only for them but for their pets. Cam, like sort of, I mean, sort of hinted at it there, like do, do you feel that you're, uh, how do I say this? How do you sort of how do you feel that your sort of uh, cultural understanding? Do you feel that helps with the work that you do do up in the um, in indigenous with remote and indigenous communities? Yeah, I suppose in the work that I do, it's been a huge learning experience for me from from the very beginning. Uh, it's really interesting that that you mentioned Mags the different ways to to have an animal in your life, and that's something that. Um, we 
is quite quite different, I suppose, to the way that we think about it in in urban Melbourne to what, when we're working up in remote communities in Arnhem Land. I guess a lot of the students who come with us, the final year vet students, are probably used to the owner of the animal being the parent in the house, um, the adult. But as you mentioned, there are, there are many ways of, of thinking about it. And so some of the dogs up there are owned by the adults. Some are owned by the children. Sometimes that might be a, a toddler who's not yet verbal. And so when we are speaking to owners about would they like their dog to be desexed or dewormed, the parents might say, yeah, that sounds like brilliant idea but you're gonna have to ask the kid who isn't really in a position to be informed and consent so that's always a very interesting um challenge for us to to approach um so and maybe yeah an animal may um may come along with a Adult kid may just be a community dog as well. So it may not necessarily be owned just by a person or a family. It may be shared between many different people. And so sometimes that can be a quite an involved process when we are trying to work with those people to get to the point that, that they want for the welfare of the animal as well. Sometimes things like euthanasia can be a very challenging thing it's quite a new thing for a lot of people in remote communities to to understand and even just communicating that as well can be can be a challenge um we i guess i've come to appreciate that we use a lot of euphemisms when we speak about euthanasia putting them down putting them to sleep doesn't mean much to people who don't really have a background of of euthanasia as a yeah. as a thing that's always a, an interesting thing. And I've tried to learn a few languages up there. Um, I didn't grow up knowing my own language. Um, Palawakani is sort of a, a reconstruction of several Tasmanian Aboriginal languages that has really only become more widespread recently. So it's not something that I grew up knowing. Um, unfortunately, I never really made much of an effort in any other language classes in school either. Um, so I feel like that part of my brain is just not as well developed as I would like it to be. So um, Completely trying to learn. Yeah, like mine. Yeah, trying to learn Gunwingu uh, <laughs> and Yongomata and Maong in several of these um, communities up there. I, I've learned a few words for um, communicating things in in practice but there's so much to it there are so many dialects and I'm often working between several communities that might have a different dialect or just a whole different language group altogether so I'm yeah trying but um, <laughs> haven't got that far with any of them really yeah, language is a funny thing, isn't it? Like it's uh, it's funny you mentioned about euthanasia and euphemisms and putting to sleep. The f one, I mean, this is not related to sort of veterinary work, but our daughter broke her arm. Our oldest daughter broke her arm when she was about six. I think she was five or six. No, it must be six or seven. She was at school and went to the hospital. She's sort of getting ready and this just comes in. 
explaining to her what's about to happen before she has an anesthetic. Eunice has gone, uh, so we're just going to get a little mask and we're going to put it over your face and it's going to put you to sleep. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, Elise's face was just absolutely horrified. This poor anesthetist sort of like when sheep white sort of going, what on earth sort of thing. And we're like, it's okay, like just use like the actual terms, use anaesthetize, sort of use those terms. From, from her point of view, putting to sleep means euthanizing. And the poor anaesthetist is like, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how language is different in different contexts, particularly the English language, which sort of uh, can be horrendously different in, in, in really different contexts. Um, yeah, so... From the RSPCA Max, you moved on to be Chief Veterinary Officer at Petshaw, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, so um, I, I had been at the RSPCA and spent, like I said, 19 years there. The last seven of those were as the Chief Vet and I, you know, we did a lot of um, work um, with people in commu- different communities. So we did a lot of work in Indigenous communities. We did a lot of work with people that were elderly um, and didn't have any social support. Um, people that were the victims of domestic violence, um, people that were homeless. So, you know, those sorts of things always made me realise that, you know, in life you can never judge um, people. And it it became one of those things that, you know, I still to this day, you know, whenever I'm having a conversation with anyone, I I don't know their background, I don't know where they've come from. And so, therefore, you know, the last thing you want to do is judge people and, um, you know, uh, that's, I think, one of the biggest lessons I learned at RSPCA, that everyone has a story. And, um, you know, if you look at your clients as people that you want to help, um, it really does change the conversation. Um, and it makes a difference to how you as a veterinarian operate and treat them, that you don't judge them for their choices um, and you don't judge them for not having money. You know, just because you're poor doesn't mean you're not a good person. And I think that um, we can sometimes do that in vet if people say, look, I can't afford to do that or I don't want to do that because I don't have the money. Mm-hmm. I think we need to look at it and go, okay, well, let's work with you. Obviously, there are ways that, you know, we can do it and there are ways where we can't do it if it means the welfare of the animal is compromised. So I think I learned a lot at the RSPCA, but it got to a point where, you know, I was 44 at the time and I'd had two, two kids. They were still young and I thought, what else can I do in my life? The job at Petshaw came up and... I had no idea what pet insurance was because, you know, like when we graduated, Kate, there was no pet insurance in Australia. But but, no, but I remember no. thinking to myself, of the few people that had pet insurance that came in our doors at the RSPCA, geez, it made our life easier as vets. <laughs> and, um, you know, and yeah. so I started to think about why I would want to work there and I thought, oh, this could be a really big thing for animal welfare and the welfare of vets as well. And so that was, um, mm. you know, when I started at Petshaw, that was my take on my purpose for being there. I needed to make sure that I had a purpose and it wasn't around the dollars. So, you know, going into an organisation that was a financial service um, organisation, I, you know, I've always worked for a vet organisation or not-for-profit and here I was in financial services and there are all these new terms coming up like loss ratio and, you know, all this stuff and I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know any of this stuff. But I did know what I knew about how vets worked um, and I also knew what were the pain points for clients and what were the pain points for vets. And so, therefore, I always remembered every meeting I went into on an executive level, I would always be the person that spoke from a different 
you know, perspective. And it, it yeah. really sort yeah. of helped, I think, not only me to maintain my purpose, but I think the organisation to actually, because my role was actually to help the organisation get closer to vets and to understand what they wanted from pet insurance. Where do you see pet insurance sitting within the context of we've talked it, we've talked about multicultural sort of communities, communities with English as a second language, disadvantaged communities, sort of remote Indigenous communities, even LGBTIQI communities where sort of uh, where oftentimes there's issues with um, employability, sort of uh, particularly for um, uh, certain elements of that LGBTIQI uh, sort of spectrum. How does pet insurance fit within the context of there's these communities often have limited incomes. They often sort of uh, have limited resources, sort of when it comes down to it, and, and sort of and sometimes different perceptions on how animals sort of uh, are fit and how they uh, how they should be treated and, and cared for and stuff like that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, you know, it's it's interesting because um, obviously pet insurance. Well, I guess it costs money. You know, that is a challenge for for those populations in areas where there is low socioeconomic. And I guess um, the people in the low socioeconomic areas, you know, they're probably not going to have pet insurance, just probably like they're not going to have their own home insurance or, you know, things like that. And I, you know, I believe that um, that animals play such an important role in society that there has to be some form of community programs or hospitals that look after people who have pets where we know pets are so important to mental health and to to lots of other other things and disadvantaged pe- um, people that there has to be a community way of assisting people rather than that, that you know being put on to private veterinary hospitals so you know the RSPCA is tasked with looking after you know animals that are the subject of cruelty cases and surrendered animals but there's not really i guess Say, for example, there's not really a fund or an organisation that looks after people with no money with their pets or very limited funds. And I think, Kate, that's probably something, you know, before I retire, I've always said I'd love to be able to lobby for some government funding so we can at least have a place where people can go where it is community funded. Um, Just like a lot of things are community funded, and I do believe that having pets is important to people and as more and more people start living alone, that, you know, their ability to, um, you know, derive fulfilment and joy from their pets is even more important. Um, And I think social isolation can happen, you know, in big cities. And so I feel like, um, you know, for mental health and for people's overall well-being, animals are important. And how we fund those clients that don't have that money should never fall on a private clinic. Um, it should really fall on our community to help. And I think that's a really big issue that we need to solve in our profession. Yeah. I actually, um, I worked in the UK for a year and one of the clinics that I locumed at over there was a uh, PDSA clinic. So um, people's dispensary for sick animals. Um, And that was real eye opener for me as a sort of way to to support people from lower socioeconomic um, situations who yeah may not have been able to to afford that and obviously it doesn't doesn't fix everything it was pretty limited in what was covered um very basic consults um i think it was sort of covering very basic meds um sort of the most basic of of antibiotics and and pain relief maybe desexing so i worked there and also in a in a 
RSPCA clinic over there. So a few different approaches. Um, and that was really interesting for me to, to learn about those different ways of, of doing things um, to support people from lower socioeconomic situations. So yeah, it's seems like there's, there's a few approaches, but probably haven't, haven't found the perfect one just yet, but Maybe a multifactorial approach. I, I know what you mm-hmm. mean, Cam. Like there's the PDSA. I know there's a number of community uh, sort of funded veterinary hospitals in the US in particular where yeah. sort of where they're mm-hmm. community funded and they provide sort of uh, veterinary services to people who can't afford them. But I, I sort of, I wonder if a, like a multifact, like a multi-pronged approach might actually be the way. I, I love the idea, Mags, of a, like you say, like a government funded sort of uh, it, kind of similar maybe along the styles lines of an AMRIC sort of style sort of thing where you sort of where you have some government funding coming in and sort of uh, that can actually penetrate those sort of communities and get into them and, and be able to provide those services because it is such a huge uh, benefit pet health is such a huge benefit to overall community health and I, and I think just exclusively saying it's the province of people who have the socioeconomic privilege to actually to be able to sort of to to do that yeah Yeah, I don't know it doesn't quite I have concerns about that yeah and I mean you know often people say well if you don't have money you shouldn't have a pet but I guess um you know for me it's about the people that actually benefit the most from having a pet are the disadvantaged and the people potentially with no money don't have connections um and their pet is everything to them you know the elderly that's why I loved our community programs, like our Pets of Older Persons programs. I, I remember clients who, you know, did have family and they were estranged. And um, so we were the only people that these people actually had any contact with. Um, and we'd go into their homes and we'd help them with their pet. And it might be just be grooming them or trimming their nails, um, dropping them off at the vet to, um, you know, have a procedure done, whatever. But it's interesting that in our society, you know, I don't... We don't value old people and they've just got, they're just, they've got so much wisdom and yet, you know, they've even got family or friends who just will not assist them and they're there for them when they die and, you know, read out the will, but they're not there for them. And I think, you know, it's, it's sad and it's a reflection, a a sad reflection on our society when that happens. And so those programs are so important because, um, you know, those, a lot of those people didn't have a lot of disposable income as well. So helping them meant that we actually, you know, made sure that they were able to access care. And I think access to care is a big issue um, in many disadvantaged communities. All right. So let's let's talk about the medical stuff. We've all had a bit of a medical journey, not for the reasons that listeners might even think, to be honest. Everyone encounters challenges in their life and medical challenges can be big ones, for sure. There's no doubt about it. Take it away. So, um, yeah, Kate and Cam, where do I start? Um, look, when I was um, when I was three years old, I was still living in Lebanon um, at the time. I um, suffered third degree burns to thirty percent of my body, mostly my scalp and my left arm. Um, I was in hospital for about six months in in Beirut, um, and at the time, Beirut was actually. Um, you know, an exceptionally um, cosmopolitan city, fantastic doctors. I managed to survive, um, which was amazing. And, um, you know, I don't know how my mum did it. Um, my dad was in Australia. My mum was with me every day. She also had a baby and another toddler. Um, but 
one of the things that is I always look back on is she must have had a lot of support and I think you know that's the wonderful thing about the the extended family she she doesn't talk much about it but I know that she had a lot of support and I think the extended family and you know no one's an island you know you you, you need that support and she she was lucky enough to have it and I was lucky enough to survive so I grew up um I guess um a little bit different to everyone else and I I remember you asking Kate you asking Alex about his hearing issues and um you know I grew up with my burns so I never knew what it was like not to have burns so yeah throughout my life it was difficult growing up because you were different um and also as a as a teenager you you knew that you know every I guess every interaction you had with someone you kind of I used to wait and see when are they going to ask me what's wrong with me or whatever. Um, and, um, yeah, it does limit the way that you grow up and how you feel about yourself. The wonderful thing is I had a wonderful family and friends, but along the way um, my parents did everything they could. So I had surgery when I was about nine years old, grow some more hair on, on the areas of my head that were actually burnt. Um, and that was a little bit successful, but at the time the doctor said, look, you know, she really needs to do more growing before we can actually do more for her. Um, so the next time I went was when I was 18 um, and I'd finished school and I went to, you know, Macquarie Street because, you know, they were the best surgeons in Australia in Macquarie Street, you know, <laughs> and um, mum and dad, um, bless them, you know, even though they couldn't afford it, they wanted me to have the best. They always say to me that's the only reason they had private health insurance was because of me. <laughs> so, um, you know, they they did everything they could um, to try and make sure that they could do for me what I needed to do. Anyway, at that time, um, having spoken to that particular surgeon, you know, she said, look, I don't think that I can do much for, for you unless you were to do this, you know, this, it, they called it balloon surgery where they actually stretched your skin, you end up looking like Mickey Mouse because you, you know, you had you yep. had balloons that were slowly um yep. I guess stretched along your scalp. And I thought I can't do this. I'm about to start uni, you know. <laughs> so anyway, um kind of long story short, I, you know, uh, very devastating, but I guess I had to learn to live with it. And you know, how I lived with it and coped with it was how I cope with everyday life, you know, is that I found that I could do things that I had control over. And Kate, you know how much I love running. Um, so throughout my 20s, um, I exercised my way out of, I guess, um, thinking about why I, you know, I couldn't go through anything that would help me. So in other words, that's how I coped. So I did a lot of running, I did a lot of swimming, I did a lot of gymming to cope. And my coping mechanism was having control over what I could control. And that was how much exercise I did. But that's how I, I managed to, I guess, live with what I believed was an impediment for me. You know, I was obviously, I was a professional, I had a job. You know, to look at me, unless you looked closely, you really couldn't see. But for me, it was always there. You know, whenever I had to fix my hair or go out, you know, I could, I could tell, you know, I had to do it in a certain way. And anyway, um, it wasn't until my late 20s one of the vets I was working with at RSPCA, actually, she said to me, oh, you know, Mags, I know someone who knows someone who is head of burns at Concord Hospital. You might want to go and see him. 
And um, anyway, I was like, oh, well, okay. I went and saw him and he had um, he had actually helped out with the Bali bombing victims as well, so he's well known. And he um, he said to me, look, you know, I can, I can help you with your arm. And so my burn on my arm, on my left arm, took, basically was took over most of the, the top of half of my arm. And um, after um, seeing me, he said, this is what I can do for you. I can, um, I can, put, I can put in some, uh, some uh, like a dilation, a balloon dilation in my arm that I will slowly um, increase over a period of 10 weeks with some saline and I'll stretch your skin and then we'll literally excise the, um, the, the scars um, over a series of, of, um, of surgeries and um, it was well worth it. I spent, you know, three or four years, I can't remember now, doing two surgeries a year, putting the ex- tissue expander in. That was one surgery, going every week to have my um, saline injections and then another surgery to take it out. You know, the first one failed. I had a, um, I had an infection that went down my arm um, and it was like a massive abscess and it was so painful. I, I can't even describe how painful it was. But, I mean, I was still working full-time at the time, but um, it was, yeah, it was extremely painful. But I continued because I knew that I was getting somewhere and I knew that someone could help me. And I, I don't know if you know, like, how the feeling that you get when somebody says, I can help you, you know, and um, after all those years of not being able to be helped. And one of the people I met there was, um, he actually said to me before I started the surgery, I need you to do two things. I need you to meet one girl who is very similar to you to you and I need you also to talk to a psychologist who um who used to work here at the Burns unit um who no longer works here but you'll find out why and so I met this girl and she became one of my best friends and we went through the same surgeries together she lived near my house and my dad used to drive us to the hospital to have our saline injections and um yeah that was one of the one of the great things that happened there but one of the other things I had to do is talk to a psychologist to actually understand you know that although I was doing this, is this going to, you know, help me? And um, mm-hmm. when I met him, he had actually been in an explosion in a car accident and had received burns to a significant part of his body while he was working at the burns unit as an actual psychologist. Wow. So he'd left the burns unit after that and he was an exceptional guy. But what he taught me was, I guess, that even without these surgeries, I was okay. It was more that I think these surgeries were something I needed to do for myself. So having gone through that, um, at the time, the girl that I that I actually met there was a hairdresser. And she knew someone who knew someone who was a hair transplant specialist in Double Bay. And she said, Mags, I think they can transplant hair onto burns. And I said, I don't think so. I've never heard anyone tell me that before. She said, you should go and see him. So I did. And um, he was another amazing person that you just met in your life because you get these opportunities. And um, he was able to do two hair transplant surgeries for me. And what came out of that was I was able to go back to the burns unit and tell them that this is what they can do. And so there was this now, you know, that next step where they could refer um, to my hair transplant specialist and you know, after two surgeries, I went overseas for a few months and my hair transplant doctor said, I need you to come and be a news for me for, for the International um, Hair Transplant Doctors Association conference in Sydney at the Hilton. And I went, oh, okay, I'll come and do that. And I, 
the more the closer it got, Kate, I don't know, and Cam, I just got really nervous because I was like, oh my God, they're gonna look through my hair, they're gonna, you know, and it was very confronting. But I'm so glad I did it because I um uh, I guess it got to show a lot of other doctors that you can do this. And it meant that so many other people around the world who'd had the same issues that I had could now benefit from transplanting hair in a particular way into burn tissue. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned about the psychologist and sort of uh, and the surgeries and because I've sort of been recently sort of talking to my psychologist about sort of um, about you know, the concepts of how people see you, like how society sees you and, and sort of, uh, and, and then how you perceive society sees you. Um, and this is going to get sort of very confusing and probably a little bit too philosophical, to be honest. But, um, but I think it is important because, I mean, my, my perception issues are to do with around with the way people perceive me as sort of, do they perceive me as female? And my body concepts about what I see as a female body first, you know, versus I can sit here and sort of an argue till the cows come home as to sort of, uh, you know, all of the arguments against what's called biological essentialism of what, you know, what defines a woman sort of thing that as far as that actually goes. And there's, there's all different types of women out there sort of, uh, but it's a, it's a different thing, isn't it, Mags, when you sort of, when it's your feelings in your body and you're sort of sitting there going, okay, I can sort of, I can do the rational thing of going, yeah, gee, that's sort of, you know, rationally, I sort of, uh, I can sort of go, well, people should just accept me for who I am, scars or not, like burns or not, like sort of, uh, you know, it's got nothing to do with my capabilities as a veterinarian, as a, as a wife, as a mother, as a sort of, uh, you know, whatever. But equally, there's an element of you do have to feel comfortable in your own body and how people perceive you and see you. And there's a challenging overlap there, which, yeah, I, I've sort of been exploring a little bit. Um, and yeah. sort of, uh, yeah, it sounds like you explored a bit there too, Max. And sort of- yeah, it was really hard talking to the psychologist because, you know, there's that element of, oh, my God, why am I here? He's lost his fingers. He's talking through a track tube. And here I am worried about my left arm, you know, like, yeah. and, um, and it's really hard to not feel, I don't know, that you shouldn't be there. But at the same time, I knew why I was there. And I knew that the reason that I wanted my surgeries was because it's what I've wanted my whole life. And now I had the opportunity and the ability to do it. And I had to do it for myself. It was not for anyone else. And I think the fact that I had the opportunity was just, you know, it, 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 it was the reason why, you know, I could then, after I had all those surgeries, I could then relax enough to be myself. And that's, I guess, when I met my husband. So, you know, things do happen for a reason, I think. Mm. So not happy with having sort of that happen, you decided to go and get brain cancer. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, uh, going, what's going on there, mate? Well, you know. So, well, tell us the story. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I look back and it, that was um, four and a half years ago, almost five years ago now, and I look back, um, my kids were five and seven, and um, I look back and it was... For everybody else, it was a big deal. But for me, 
it actually wasn't. I I remember having the seizure and waking up in bed with my husband and the and the um, ambulance um, in my room telling me I'd just had a seizure. And obviously I never knew I had the seizure, but I, I remember waking up and and being taken to hospital. And within a few hours of having a CT, I had a diagnosis of a six and a half centimetre brain tumour in my head. And I remember thinking, how could this, this be? I, I just went for a run this morning. I've worked all day. I've come home. But it was as soon as they turned the screen, I could see this brain tumour. I was actually okay because I remember Tony, my husband, like looking absolutely, you know, scared. And But I was happy because they found something. And the worst thing that could happen if you've had a seizure is they don't diagnose anything and then you're sort of playing the waiting game, when am I going to have my next seizure? But as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, let's get it out, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and I think that the big thing for me about my brain tumour wasn't that I had to have a brain tumour and I had to have the surgery. It was the fact that my attitude towards it was, well, why not me? I'd rather it happen to me than to anyone I knew or loved because for me, having surgery, I've had that many surgeries, it didn't really matter. It wasn't surgery that bothered me. Um, it was worrying about everybody else worrying about me. <laughs> and so the follow, like a week later, and believe me, Kate, I didn't have a will. <laughs> and Cam, I had to go and get a will in that week. I'd never even thought of it before. I was, you know, at the time I was, I was uh, 46, 45, 46. And so I didn't even have a will. And then I realised, oh, my God, I don't have a will. So I went and did that. And that's really confronting to, <laughs> you know, to have to go and do that and think that, you know, you're still young. But, look, the, the great thing about what happened to me was I was extremely grateful. I had a grade one meningioma, which is benign. And although it was really big, it was in an area where um, they could easily take it out. It was just sort of up here. They just cut me open. And I still remember the doctor saying to me, you're going to have a scar on your, on your scalp. And I just looked at him and I said, are you for real? Like, can you have a look? <laughs> I've got many scars <laughs> on my scalp. Don't worry about that extra surgical scar. But, you know, look, I, um, I'm very grateful. You know, I had a fantastic surgeon. Six weeks later, I was running. I didn't need chemo. I have had four uh, MRIs since and um, they've all been, there's been no tumour growth and there's not likely awesome. to be, but I still have to have some MRIs every three years now. And I'm just grateful, you know, to be, to be alive and... Um, if it teach, taught me anything, it taught me that your attitude is everything, you know. it's And not, none of it was, like, I didn't will myself to be positive. It just happened. I just was like, well, I had to accept it because it was there. I wasn't going to change anything and I couldn't change it. But what I could do was change the way I thought about it and felt about it and my response to it. And my response was get it out. I need you to get it out so that I can live my life again. And I think um, it says a lot about mind over matter, I think. Your mind can, can really do amazing things. Cam, you've had a, a tumour as well, like tumour experience as well. I have, yeah. It's um, fascinating the things that unite us, isn't it? Um, yeah. So when I was 14, I became one of the youngest Australians as far as I know in history, to have a melanoma. Um, so I had mine on my thigh in a spot that 
you know, I wore board shorts when I went to the beach, never really saw sun. So um, being very young, not really seeing the sun, it was I was pretty low risk of developing anything like that. So it was pretty amazing that it happened at all. But what was even more amazing was that my mum noticed it um, and knew enough to, to realise that something was up, went to my GP who also thankfully um, had made skin cancers a, a special area of interest um, for him. So he knew enough to, to say, yeah, that definitely looks sus. Um, let's take it off now. And yeah, I uh, remember a few days later walking home from school and meeting mum on the way back and her saying, okay, we need to go to a plastic surgeon this afternoon to talk about having some more surgery because you've got, well, had a melanoma. Thankfully, my GP had actually excised the, the whole thing, um, but still needed further margins to make sure that everything was out. So that was, that was it as far as my treatment went. I didn't need chemo or anything like that. So I was extremely lucky. And I think that's what I took away from it was that really in so many ways I'd won the lottery um, that I had this really quite aggressive cancer that in weeks or months could have been something that had, had spread to lymph nodes. But I had people in my life who were looking out for me and, and spotted it and, and fixed it for me. And so I think before then, I was a pretty typical surly 14-year-old boy who was a bit of a miserable little shit a lot of the time. Um, and, I can't imagine you being <laughs> surly, But I think it really snapped me out of it and just gave me appreciation of what an amazing chance I had been given and what different circumstances I, I could have been in um, had things panned out differently. So, um, yeah, it was real, real boot up the ass, I think, and I think contributed a lot to the person I am now. So, yeah. So, okay. So my cancer, my cancer story, I told you listeners that the medical thing wouldn't be about what you'd expect. I did have a bowel cancer in, was diagnosed in 2003. I think I was about 32 or 33 or something or other. Uh, so I, I'd been receiving regular checkups because I've had, had ulcerative colitis for most of my life. And I remember sort of, uh, I remember distinctly sort of, mine was a little bit different, the uh, different diagnosis to, to you guys, my diagnosis experience. Mine was, I'd been receiving regular checkups and during one of these, they took a biopsy. I wasn't expecting that much. They, they often took biopsies. They sort of, uh, it wasn't a, particularly unusual thing and they usually came back as being just non-specific dysplastic change which is very common with ulcerative colitis in this particular time I received a phone call at about seven o'clock at night from my specialist and he said we've picked up a cancer and uh, you need to you need to go and see a surgeon and I remember it just being I remember it just being a whirlwind sort of to be honest we saw a surgeon literally the next week he got us in to see a specialist surgeon the next week I remember distinctly because we were booked in to go to the AVA conference in Cairns and we were actually booked our, our 
eldest at the time was about two and a half years old, I think, sort of two, two and a half years old. We're going to go up and we're going to go to the Great Barrier Reef. We had all these plans sort of going on for what we're going to do. And I think that was about, the conference was about three weeks away or something or other, sort of, uh, this was in about March or April, sort of, uh, and saw the surgeon. And so he said, hey, you need to have surgery, blah, 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 this, that. You need to have a sort of total colectomy. And I remember distinctly asking, oh, okay, so we're sort of, uh, we're going to a, and I'm thinking specialist surgeon, it's going to take ages to get a bed, you know what it's like, sort of uh, um, uh, to actually get sort of medical treatment at times. I said, oh, we're going away, so we'll be back in about four weeks. Would you be able to get us into hospital by then? And he said, no, you're booked in for surgery next week. Very much this whole whirlwind and I remember similar, very similar thoughts to you, Mags, in terms of it was a matter of get this thing out, like sort of it was a matter of trusting the medical professionals to actually get it out and fix it and sort it. Um, uh, I was also very lucky that the, I didn't need to have chemo or any sort of adjunctive therapies, and I was 15 years clear on a CT scan about three years ago. But I'm going to come to our sort of. Uh, I'm going to come to our last question. You alluded to this question a little bit before, Mags, in terms of, and ask for ask all of us. So, red pill, blue pill. Would you take the red pill if it meant that you never had your cancer, uh, so never had your uh, surgery, uh, but anyone that you met, anything that sort of, anything that sort of it changed in your life, wouldn't have happened. Would you take it? Okay, this is a really hard question because um, I would love to tell you that probably every day when I was growing up, I wished that I was never burnt. I can tell you that Mm. for a fact. And it's still to this day is something that I I will be honest about. I, I wish it wasn't me, but then I just wish it wasn't someone else either because I know that it's, you know, the grief and the, and the distress it's caused my whole life. But I will say to you that I don't think I would be the same person that I am today had I not gone through that. I think I have a level of empathy and a level of um, accepting people that I think I probably may have had, but I think has been, I guess, enhanced because of what I'd had to go through. So, you know, when... When people say, you know, you're really empathetic or you're always about people, because I am. It's just naturally how I've been because I have throughout my life um, always wanted to see the best in people, knowing that potentially everyone's got a story to tell. You know, you've got your stories, Kate, Cam, you've got your stories. Everyone has a story. So I always believe the best in people until they let me down. (laughs) Um, But I... I, I'd love to say I wish it never happened, but would I have met my husband? Would I have had the opportunities that I've had? Would I be here on your show, Kate um, and Cam, talking about my life? I remember when I was asked to do the Sydney Uni graduation speech at the end of 2016, and I kept thinking, why are they asking me? Like, you know, it's not like I've got a PhD or I've changed the world. And I still remember thinking, I actually said no. <laughs> thinking, oh, I haven't got time to write a speech anyway. Um, But then um, I said yes, and I thought, well, the only way I can do that is if I can be authentic and actually speak about life 
And what's happened to me, it was the first time I'd ever opened up about my burns publicly. You know, my whole family was in the front row of the Great Hall at Sydney Uni and they were all sitting there and um, it was only a seven-minute speech. But eight weeks after that speech, I had my brain tumour. I remember thinking to myself, if I die during the surgery, at least my kids have something that they can listen to that tells them about what I was like and what I valued in life. And so I think all things happen for a reason, you know, and um, I, I just, and, you know, the, the brain tumour, that was just a little hump in the road. But what it also taught me was, hey, you know, I was working so much, I was doing so much, really needed to just slow down. And that was the most time I'd ever spent with my kids ever, you know, since they were babies. So if you ask me that question, absolutely, I wish I never got burnt. Absolutely, I wish I never had the brain tumour. But, you know, I don't want to lose the things that have happened in my life now. So it's a bit of both, Kate. What about you, Kate? I'll ask you that question. <laughs> I'll, I'll answer in a second. What about you, Kim? Um, no, I think, I think I'm pretty happy. Well, obviously, I... I'm a very privileged person in so many ways. Um, but I suppose the adversity that I've been through has done so much more to shape the person that I am. You know, it's taken a while, but I like who I am. And so, yeah, I'm, I think I'm, I'm fine with it. I completely and totally get where you're coming from, Mags. The, um, so I've had a total colectomy. I have to go to the toilet around about five or six times a night. And believe me, it is annoying as hell. And honestly, open abdominal surgery, sort of, uh, that hurts. That was like, that was the most pain I think I've ever come across. Like I was unzippered from ziphoid to pubis, so to speak. And, yeah. and it's uncomfortable. It hurts. So if you're undoing it, if sort of if any listeners are doing surgery on a dog and doing an exploratory laparotomy and you do not give them take-home pain relief, my God, go and belt yourself around the head. Um, <laughs> they need pain relief. So, but it's it's interesting because as you say, guys, I, I sort of uh, definitely, we were probably, Tara and I were probably in that sort of thing of like we were trying to do the whole make the 2.4 kids family sort of uh, build the house, buy the house, sort of uh, be the practice owner or whatever. And after that, it, there was an element of, hell, we've got no idea how long this is going to be. Like it could have been sort of uh, 12 months. It could have been well, 15 years, 20 years. So it refocused our lives. Uh, a, a lot, I think. I think it did refocus uh, uh, our lives on uh, enjoying experiences rather than building for things. It's not to say that we don't sort of, you know, make building a practice and um, and having a house for the kids or whatever, but our focus has very much always been experiences rather than things. And I think that was shaped a fair bit by, the, by that cancer experience. Uh, I, I do think it was. Yeah, I'd I'd love to, I'd love to not have to go to the toilet umpteen thousand times a day. I'd love to not have sort of a whopping big scar up the middle of my bloody gut. But equally, would I be the same person? Because I do, like you say, Cam, 
kind of like the person I am now. Yeah, I, I think sort of the experiences that I've been through have shaped that and, uh, and shape all of us. The experiences that all of us go through shape who we are. Life is what it is, isn't it? Well, that's kind of brought us uh, to the end of uh, to the end of our time, which is probably just as well because this is we've gone for about an hour and forty three minutes, so we're going to have to try and edit this down somehow. <laughs> I have no idea how, but we'll work on it. I don't know, sort of two hour podcast or a thing yet. Um, but thank you so much, Mags. It has been. Wonderful and amazing to speak to you. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed our talk and uh, we've uh, explored so many things and it's just been absolutely wonderful. Uh, so thank you. Thanks, thank you. Kate, and thanks, Cam, for having me on. Um, it's been great to have a chat with you both. Thank you. And thank you to my wonderful co-host, Cam, who didn't get much of a word in edgewise this week. I'm going to apologize to this episode. I'm going to apologize. Enjoying listening. It's been great. But uh, message to all those listeners, do your uh, bowel cancer screening test and get your skin checked as well. Absolutely. Make sure you are looking after yourselves uh, physically, your physical health in lockdown, as well as your mental health. So thank you. And bye. See you then. Bye.